Well, good morning again, and uh, if you've got your Bibles, open up to Psalm 24. Um, Psalm 24, uh, I'm making no apologies for it. This is a banger. This is a good one. Um, they're all good, of course. They're all awesome. Um, but it's kind of tough when you're coming off the coattails of Psalm 23, you know, like the most popular psalm of all time. And so Psalm 24, you don't hear too many people talk about it. Even today, we talk about Psalm 25. I, I know that Psalm 25 is very uh, much utilized for times of personal um, devotion and prayer. And so Psalm 24 kind of snuck away in there, but um, it's one of my favorites. And I think one of the reasons why it's so awesome is that, man, from this side of Jesus' cross, we just see so much about him in here. We just see so much. This, 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 this text is just oozing Jesus. It just, it's, it's everywhere in it. And so, um, so, yeah, let us go ahead and read the text, and then we will pray. Hear now the word of the Lord from Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Let us pray. O God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord God, you were kind to your people. You were mighty to save. Lord God, your word tells us many glorious truths. And so, Lord, I pray this day is a day where we take serious the task of hearing your word, that we would be filled by your word, that we would be convicted by your word, that we would be changed by your word, and that we would be conformed by your word into greater likeness of Jesus Christ, your Son. Lord God, you were kind and wonderful, uh, even to lowly vessels such as I, Lord. Uh, though a night filled with much, uh, very little sleep and some anxiety, Lord, I'm an unfit vessel. So, Lord, I pray now for the empowering of the preaching of your word. Uh, not for my namesake, Lord, but for yours, for your glory. May you receive all glory and honor. Lord, you are good and kind to your people. We love to hear the voice of our Father. So, Lord, thank you for the word. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, the King of glory. Amen. And so, um, Psalm 24, powerful, powerful message. Powerful, powerful psalm. Um, and uh, by means of introducing it to us, one of the things that happens when we read the Old Testament is, is if, you've, if you've got your own storybook Bible, right, the Jesus Storybook Bible, uh, it's got a wonderful subtitle. It's got the subtitle of, uh, Every story, story whispers his name. 
And that's great insight, especially you know, when Jesus is teaching the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Right? He's letting them through on every story that the Old Testament tells. It's all about him. right? It's all about me, he tells them. And Psalm 24 happens to be one of these psalms that sometimes the psalms are kind of cryptic and we kind of pick and choose and we, we kind of have to decipher which part of a psalm is really speaking about Jesus. And uh, when we come to Psalm 24, this just happens to be one of those psalms where every part of it is just screaming Jesus. It's just shouting the name of Jesus. And we read these words with the end in mind, right? Like we, we stand on, the, on this end of the cross and so we look back. And so we have that perspective. We, we've, we've gained a, a perspective that when David is writing this, David, he doesn't know. He doesn't know who this king is going to be. All he has been promised is that a king will come from his line and that kingdom will last forever. A king will come from his line and he will reign forever. And so David... He has a, for someone who has a hazy, doesn't know exactly who this king is going to be, I mean, boy howdy, he nails it, right? I mean, this, this, these descriptions of this king to come, it's wonderful, it's delightful, and it's only because there is a divine author behind the written word that this makes any sense, and that David could have such a clear depiction of this king who is to come. And so... Um, when we come to Psalm 24, we see in it, of course, the kingship of Jesus portrayed. But we see it in three particular ways. So that's what I want us to look at. In Psalm 24, there's three different sections of it. Um, and each one of those, it shows us a way in which Jesus truly is king. And so the first of those is Jesus is the creator king. Or, yes, and then we see that he is the covenant king. And thirdly, he is the conquering king. Creator king, covenant king, and conquering king. So let us first turn uh, to how Psalm 24 depicts this coming king as the creator king. Verses 1 and 2 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Just those opening words. The earth is the Lord's. Everything belongs to him. Everything belongs belongs to him. All territory in existence and all the inhabitants on this planet, it belongs to him. You belong to him. And so there is no corner or crevice where he will fail to enforce his will. All beings belong to Yahweh. He is the Lord who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And so how is it that David can say everything that everything belongs to God? How can he, how can he say this? Well, he actually leans on those first words of the Bible, right? He says, here he leans on the idea that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Right? This is a, the foundational claim of all scripture, that God is creator. He made us all. In Psalm 8, we hear about God as this master craftsman, right? We hear the words, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? This master craftsman who's designed all creation. But here in Psalm 24, uh, we hear that Jesus, he's not just a master craftsman, he's a master stonemason. He takes land, he takes rock and dirt, and he builds it right on top of the waters. Right now, not to brag on him, but Clint Loy, he's helping me build a front porch right now. And it, it looks amazing and it's great. And sometimes I go out there and I'll look at it after he leaves so I don't like, give him too big of a head. Um, I'll go out there and I'll look at it and I'm just like, man, this thing is solid. 
This thing is awesome. Like, this, is, it's, this looks so wonderful. This is just, in great work, I'm not trying to minimize it, this is just one little porch on one little front step of one little house in this cosmos, right? On this world. And it can still cause me this great awe of like, wow, whoever built this did a great job, <laughs> right? This whole world right now sits atop, has been built in a way we can't even fathom. We don't know how it all holds together. We can, scientifically, we can explain the Earth's crust and all into that. But that it all came together. Everything belongs to God because he built this place. He put it all together. And so he has claim over all of us. He has claim over all things. And so God, he created everything so it belongs to him. You belong to him. He has claim over your life. The Apostle Paul, he helps and he adds to this understanding of creation. Um, but, he, but he zones in a little bit. A little bit more specific. Remember, David doesn't have all, he doesn't have all the knowledge, right? But someone like Paul, he's got greater revelation of knowledge. And so Paul says in Colossians 1, verses 15 and 16, he says, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. It's a magnificent truth. I remember uh, teaching, <laughs> teaching uh, second graders, third graders at a uh, different ministry position years and years ago. And when you're a kid, you just kind of think that like God the Father is like kind of doing everything and then Jesus shows up at the end of the story, right? And so that's what I love about this. And I would love teaching those kids that like Jesus was there at the beginning. He is the agent of creation. He is the creator God. Jesus is the creator. He is our creator king. You've probably heard this quote before if you've listened to much Christian theological discussion. Maybe, maybe you haven't. But Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch theologian, he, he famously proclaimed that there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, Mine. Christ, he is the creator king, from whom and through whom and to whom all things belong. And I think uh, as far as historical context goes as well like the bible one thing that's awesome we don't think about if you're for me i never think about this like i it takes looking at smart people who talk about the bible for me to understand this um because i'm just like reading genesis i read psalm 24 this stuff about creation and i just think well cool very very matter of fact god built it that's great wonderful what what, what comes next um one thing we don't get from the like we as modern people we don't understand in the ancient uh, you know, ancient writings is oftentimes the Bible's language about creation in the Old Testament is a polemic. It's a, it's a critique. It's a critical ex- attack on the other mythologies that are existing of the day. And so we know one of the great enemies of Israel are the Canaanite people. And so this story, um, I, though I think it is actually true, I think God actually created the earth. He created it in the span of six days. I believe all that. Um, but I think that the biblical authors, oftentimes what they're doing is they actually use what is true and they use that truth to go ahead and kind of throw shade at the other religions around the world. And so the Canaanite religion, in their story, their creation story, how the world came about, Baal has vanquished another deity whose name is Yom. And so Yom, it actually is the same word in Hebrew for sea. Right? So Baal has defeated the seas. He's built the world on the ashes of the sea. And so David here, he's telegraphing to his audience. Not that it didn't also happen. I believe this, you know, I believe this is how, you know, God who's built the world on top of the waters, right? Um, 
But I also believe that this is, he's telegraphing to his audience, and I think this also takes place with Genesis 1 and 2 as well, but that it is not Baal who has created the earth. It is not Baal who is king over creation. No, it is Yahweh. Yahweh and he alone is the king of creation. He is our creator king. And so David, he leans on Genesis 1 and 2 for his proclamation of Yahweh, the creator king. Yahweh's creation of the world and all that dwells therein places a claim on every one of us. We belong to him. He is our creator king. And from him and through him and to him are all things. But this isn't the only way we see this king, this coming king depicted. We actually uh, hear that this king is a covenant-keeping king. That he is a covenantal head. And so we hear these words in uh, Psalm, uh, in verse 3, it says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? And if we're, if we're made by him, and we, if we all belong to him, then this is an ultimate question. This is an all-important question. If humanity belongs to God, if we are made for him, then we need to know who can stand with him. Who can actually bear the presence of God? And I actually want you to notice, but we're going to zoom out real fast. I want you to notice the movement of the psalm. Originally, what is David talking about? He's talking about the whole world, the expanse of, of all the earth. And then he zooms flying in, right? He goes from this God's eye view of the earth all the way down to this one single location, one hill, the hill of the Lord, this one sacred place. And so why? Why is it here? And, and I'm going to tell you up front, and then we'll, we'll, wake, wake, we'll make our way through what I think he's doing. But I think it's because he's demonstrating that after the fall, after the fall in the garden, God's presence is exclusive. God's presence, because of our sin and the sin of our father, Adam, it takes special privilege to be in his presence. Before, it was free and open access in the garden to wherever they wanted to go, God was with them. But now, it's, it's been made exclusive. And so we're going to kind of breeze through a couple of these things. So, um, why has this, why does uh, David now focus on this one single place? So whenever we read about the ascending of the Lord's mountain in Scripture, I know the first place I think of is I think of Moses, right? Moses in the writing of the law, he goes up on the mountain. That's where he dwells with God on Mount Sinai. It's where he receives the law. And in that place, Sinai really is the hill of the Lord. We can really say that is true, that it is the mountain of God. It is Yahweh's mountain. And so Sinai, it's fine to say that it's, it's fair to say it is the hill of the Lord. But actually in Ezekiel 28, the prophet, he speaks of the man of Tyre, which is actually the symbol of speaking of Satan. He's talking about Satan. And in Ezekiel 28, he, he describes that satanic figure being back in the garden, and that that garden is on the hill of the Lord. And so we see that Sinai, we can describe it as the hill of the Lord, and Ezekiel, he describes the garden as the hill of the Lord. And then in the Psalter, where we see the discussion of the hill of the Lord, not just in Psalm 24, but in Psalm 2, right? He calls the hill of the Lord Zion, where he installs his holy king. And so what I think, this is biblical, I think this is a biblical theological statement. What we can do is we can look at these scriptures and say that, yes, the garden is where God dwells with his people. It is the hill of the Lord. In Sinai is the hill of the Lord. And all of them, they poate into that future place, the Mount Zion, the mountain of the Lord, the hill of the Lord. There's a connection between all these places. All three of these can rightfully be called the hill of the Lord. And I think that 
Zion is really the culmination of all these places. It's that final resting place. It will be uh, where God dwells finally, right? And so, but it brings us back to the statement, right? I think it's all that information is relevant when we hear the question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? So who does have access to God's holy hill? Verses 4 and 5, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. David, he already leaned on Genesis 1 to get his understanding of the creator king, but now he's going to look to to the the very next chapter, Genesis 3, and he's going to see that in Adam's sin, God drives him out from his holy hill. God drives Adam away from his presence. In the garden, this holy hill, it's only where the holy and the unblemished may dwell with God. And so he gives four qualifications, David that is, he gives four qualifications as to the one who can stand in God's holy place, who can stand with God on his holy hill. The first is innocent hands. Innocent hands. These are hands that are free from guilt. They're free uh, from acts of transgression. To have innocent hands is to be ones who have never worked deeds that defile. These are the only hands which make it into God's presence. And we all fall short of that. But it also requires a pure heart to stand before the Lord. If hands speak of actions, heart speaks to the thoughts, the motives, the emotions, our inclinations, all of which need to be pure to be in the presence of God. But he doesn't stop there. These next ones, they take a little bit more unpacking, um, but, um, but it says that the one who can ascend to the, the Lord is he who does not lift up his soul to what is false. Uh, I think the simplest way of understanding this is it's the one who does not, fall, who does not worship falsely, the one who does not worship false gods. It is the one who worships that which deserves worship. And lastly, it is he who does not swear deceitfully that will be in the Lord's presence. Uh, it's the one who he keeps his word. When his promise is given, he, he upholds the promises that he gives. He doesn't say something to get you to believe one way and then hoodwinks you and acts another. He's being truthful in thought and in deed. And Adam is none of those. After, his, his, after the sin that he committed, he forfeits the hill of the Lord. And in doing so, we fall with him. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 5.12, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. He goes on to say in verse 18, One trespass led to the condemnation for all men. Through the one man, our representative head, our covenant head, Adam, by his fall, we were all made sinners. But we need only look at our own lives to see if we somehow can make, meet these qualifications. Are we righteous as the Lord is righteous? Are we holy as the Lord is holy? Can we ascend the hill of the Lord? Can we commune with God, the God who made us? According to his terms, we're not able to ascend or stand or commune. Psalm 53 says, There is none who does good, not even one. But praise be to God that Paul goes on in Romans 5 to tell us that Adam was only a type, he, a type of the one who was to come. Christ is the second Adam who, can, who came to fulfill what Adam did not. And so Jesus, he receives the reward for walking with integrity. Those four qualities, those four qualifications, those are upheld only by Christ. 
Christ and Christ alone can keep the law. Christ, he is the one who maintains and upholds the promises of the covenant. Where we fall short, Christ does not. And so he doesn't receive righteousness, right? It says that this man, that he receives righteousness. He doesn't receive righteousness. Um, the, the way the word righteous is used in the Old Testament, it's got a variety of meanings. And so it's not that this guy who ascends the hill of the Lord, this one with uh, clean hands and pure heart, it's not that Jesus is receiving righteousness. No, he has a righteousness of his own. But it's that he's receiving vindication. His work, the work that he's doing, he's climbing his own hill of the Lord, Calvary. That work he is doing, it brings vindication and honor to him. And so they are means which Jesus receives honor. But then we hear some of the best words that we can hear. These words, they are amazing. Verse 6, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Christ's reward is not just something he keeps all to his own. But as our covenant head, our covenant king, he makes us like him. Romans 5 again, verses 14 through 17. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God, the free gift by the grace of that one man, Christ Jesus, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification for if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of the righteous reign in life through the one man christ jesus see because because of christ because what he's done his righteousness the righteousness of god has been imputed to his people As our covenant king, he acts on our behalf. His active and passive obedience in his life, in his life, his ministry, even in his death and resurrection, because he acted on his people's behalf as our covenant king, we are that generation that can seek the face of the God of Jacob. Oftentimes when we talk about things like original sin, or we talk about our unrighteousness, we oftentimes forget the fact that when you've been washed by the blood of Jesus, when you've been cleansed by him, you can be like him. You can seek righteousness. You can choose that which pleases the Lord. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. We can be people who seek the face of God, that we can delight in him, and he looks on us, and he delights in us. Because Christ keeps the covenant on our behalf, bearing the penalty of the covenant for us so that we may become those who seek the face of God. Christ's active and his passive obedience has awarded righteousness to his people. What we could not do, he did. He has innocent hands, a pure heart. He lifts his soul up only to what is true and he always keeps his promises. Christ indeed is our covenant king. We are people who delight in our covenant king because our covenant king, he is also our conquering king. Uh, from time to time, tomorrow is one of these times, over at Jonathan Blakely's house, we have Macho Man movie night. This is like the Macho Man Bible verse right here. Right? This is like the conquering king, right? This image of Christ. It, this is some of the most wonderful stuff you'll hear. In all literature, not just the Bible, but certainly the Bible. 
um, hear these words. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So we move from this idea of a hill, and all of a sudden, um, the, the idea that this, the hill of the Lord is a temple, this place where God dwells with his people, is being further cemented right here. And see, what we see here is this, this, this temple, this, this whole, uh, these verses, they show a, a temple almost personified, or a city gate being personified, the city walls. Um, some commentators actually think this part, like what David's actually thinking in, in his original context, is uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 12 through 15. It's where David has gone and defeated the Philistines who were harboring. They were, they were the ones holding the Ark of the Covenant. And so they go out and they just they, you know, stomp, a mud, uh, stomp a mud hole in the Philistines. And then the people, they bring back the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Uzzah is the guy who touches it and he dies. And, you know, tragic for him. But, but they finally get it back into, uh, they bring it back into Jerusalem finally. And so some might say that this is kind of a depiction of, of David, the king, riding victoriously back to Jerusalem with that which belongs to him. The Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God once again entering into, into Jerusalem. And they didn't have the temple at the time, but would be the tabernacle. The temple would be coming to be built. So if I say temple, I probably mean tabernacle, so forgive me there. But, um, but David, he went and he brought the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God. Um, he brought, brings it back into Jerusalem. And so, again, this imagery, I think, again, being modern people, we kind of lose some of the significance, some of the imagery. And so um, ancient cities, right, like... I just drive on the interstate and I can go into Carthage, I can go into Neosho, I can do whatever. Like, there's not some giant wall that stops me from going. But in the ancient world, if your city didn't have walls, big problem. Big problem, because how are you going to defend yourself, right? So walls were an essential part of ancient civilizations, ancient cities. And so, um, so this is this image that we get, whether it's a city or it's the temple itself, is, is the gates of the city, the doors of, the, of this temple, it says that their heads, they're being told to be lifted up. It's almost as if these, the gates, that they're, the heads of the gates, they're drooping, that they're in slumber, that they've been waiting for a long time. Again, in these ancient cities and ancient wars, what would happen? Um, particularly, I think, a, a fascinating one is uh, the rebellion of the Jews in, uh, in the first century, right, after Christ, uh, in the 70s when Jerusalem is finally destroyed. Um, but in 81 AD, in Rome... The Romans built this, te- uh, not a temple, but it's an arch. It's called the Arch of Titus. You can go there today if you wanted to. Uh, it'd be expensive to go there, but you could do it. Um, and in this archway, it was built because Titus was the Roman emperor who him and his son Vespasian, they, would, they went into Rome, or they, sorry, they went into Jerusalem, and they defeated the Jews. And what they did is when they would defeat their enemies is they would go and they would take the spoils of war and they would take prisoners of the war and they would march them back to the capital and parade them in a procession through the city to humiliate them and to say, what was yours is now ours. And so when you go to this Arch of Titus in Rome today, what you see is this depiction of Roman centurions dragging chained Jews up. And you'll see Roman centurions carrying things like menorahs and other Jewish symbols. And so it's, again, this was a, 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 common, um, a common ritual done in ancient civilizations that if we conquer you, 
what was good for you is now ours, and we boast about it. We march through our city and say, what belongs to us now? Look at these spoils of war. And so, I just, that imagery is what you just hear, this procession. When we read Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10, is this procession is walking up to the city gates of Jerusalem. They're walking up to the temple doors. And the people, they're saying, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. That generation, the generation that seek the face of God through the, price, uh, through the, the, the victory of Christ, it is through Christ's victory, He is the King who goes out and rides and defeats our enemies. Our enemies of sin and death, Christ goes and He, com- he combats them, He conquers them. And when He comes back to the city, the spoils of His war are His people. And so we are those people who are saying to the temple doors, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may, be, may come in. And the herald atop the city saying, anticipating the return of his king, he asked rhetorically, who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. This is the Lord, a mighty man of valor. He has gone out and he has defeated the enemy. And he brings us back with him. This is the, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the King of glory. It is the Lord himself who will scale the mountain and stand in his holy place. When David, I don't think, I don't think there's a way David could have got this. Like he, I think he believes in the promise that there is a king coming who is from his line. The, the surprise that he must have found out when the king who arrived was God incarnate. God himself shows up and is leading the procession of victory into the dwelling place of God. I don't think David had the bandwidth for that. I'd love to see his face when he's like, it's actually God himself who showed up. The king is God himself. Psalm 24 celebrates the entrance of this conquering king into Zion and the presence of the divine warrior among his people. This is the ground for our peace, our tranquility, and all things. The Lord is with us. He is our fortress. This foundation, this is the foundation, the fortification and defense of the city of God of Zion, that he is the divine warrior. He is the conquering king. He brings blessing, victory, and vindication to his people because he is the conquering king, the divine warrior. He is the warrior for you. If you belong to him, he fights for you. He is fighting your battles. He is defeating sin and death for you. And for those who this king has fought for, they will forever dwell with the king of glory. Let us pray. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, you are mighty. You are mighty in battle. Our foes of sin and death, Lord God, they are nothing to you. Your son has gone to battle for us. He has gone to the fields. He has slain those things which would prevent us from your holy presence, from climbing and ascending the hill, your holy hill. So, Lord, thank you for Christ. We thank you for him as, as our creator king, our covenant king, and our conquering king, Lord. Thank you for Christ, who is so much more than we imagine, so much more than we can praise. Let us always remember that Christ is for his people and his work is for us. May we honor and glorify him forever and ever. Amen.